0: Welcome to the Mortise and Tenon Magazine podcast, where we're celebrating historic furniture making. This is episode number three. I'm uh, Joshua. I am Mike. And we are excited for our third episode. We've been having a lot of fun, uh, doing a lot of cool things, working on the shop and different things. Um, but we just got our tables video. Yeah, uh,
1: it is great to have that out in the world. It's available right now. Uh, Digital streaming and digital download and the DVD version should be available by hopefully
0: mid-December. Yeah, mid-December. Some, that's and, and again, we should just review, you know, what is this video, what, what we're doing with it?
1: Yeah, so um, the apprenticeship series is basically unpacking learning hand tool woodworking in the way it would have been taught in a traditional apprenticeship. Um, so we're developing this series around forms rather than specific builds to specific plans or something like that. Right. We're talking about in tables um, how you learn the table form. And what that does is instead of learning how to build a specific table, it allows you to kind of build any table.
0: Right. Yeah. Because if you were going to take an apprenticeship in the 18th century, say, and you walk into the master cabinet maker shop, He's going to say, this is how we're going to build tables. You get some right. tenons, you get some mortises put together. And a lot of the differences and the variables are all just sort of mostly ornamentation, few different styles, but most period tables are all put together the same way. Yep. And so the focus of this video was to show the guts, to show how all these tables are similar. And then we walk through, I, I build one specific table that has sort of all the bells and whistles, drop leaf, uh, stretchers, drawer, all that kind of stuff to walk through a typical uh, pre-industrial construction or process, yep. as far as I can determine. Right. Uh, there was, of course, it's a little bit of filling in the blanks with guesswork on how this would have been done, but yep. it's all it's a hand tool only uh, table building video. So I'm really excited about how it turned out. It's yeah, it's
1: really great. I am too. I'm I'm already getting to the point where I. I actually enjoy uh watching it, you know. Uh, there is a time there at watching clips over and over again where, you know, I think just about anyone would get a little sick of it. But uh I'm beyond that. I think it's I think it's a nice video. And so we're we've been getting a lot of really good feedback already. Yeah. It's it's been wonderful hearing from everyone who has watched it and uh who has picked up from it and who are planning on watching it again.
0: Yeah. So our readers are awesome. They really, yeah. are. They, uh, We appreciate all of you sending us emails and comments and stuff. It's really encouraging to us. So, it is. Uh, thank you very much for that.
1: <clears throat> yeah. the uh, The other big thing in MNT world, of course, is the ongoing uh, shop construction. Uh, big. Uh, I guess the big thing today. We just got back here to the studio after having uh, taken delivery of uh, load of shingles. up on the roof. I love those boom trucks. They do the work for you (laughs) instead of having to lug those that stuff up and down the ladder. Um, we had uh, a friend of mine, Matthew come and help us this week. Yep. He's been, it it was awesome having him. We got uh, a tremendous amount of work done. Yeah. Um, it it was amazing to both Matthew and myself to see the fact that Joshua single-handedly, uh, insulated and uh, sheathed and put, I guess we'd call them false rafters or something, and then um, put plywood and everything on one entire half of the roof all by himself. He dragged everything up there. He put it all in place. We kept looking at that going, how on earth is this possible? How did he get all this done? When the three of us, it felt like a tremendous amount of work and shuffling and lugging. And uh, So while I was sitting at home, you know, Twiddling my thumbs, editing tables, <laughs> uh, video. Um, Joshua was getting all that done, and uh,
0: it's pretty awesome. However, it took me over two weeks to get to that point. Wow! Well, and the three of us did it like in three and a half days, or I mean, whatever. Well, it was.
1: right, but you, <laughs> so. yeah, the the man hour. Anyway, <laughs> yeah. it was a lot of a lot of work, but it uh, it's looking really good. We are hoping that the snow holds off just a little longer. Uh, so we can get a roof on there.
0: Yeah. yeah. So I have been thinking about as we've been <clears throat> doing this, Mike and I have talked about how, um, you know, he, you know, he's been talking about. Oh, I've been sitting at the computer finishing this video; it's tiring, mm. and I've been up on the roof and yeah. hauling things, and my back and knees are sore. And, <laughs> and uh, so we've just been talking about the value of work and that kind of thing. Yeah. Um, and. We were then we were talking about this book uh, that I've been reading. Um, it's actually not a brand new book, but it's uh, I finally got around to reading it. And that's uh, Shop Class as Soul Craft by Matthew Crawford. And uh, this the, the subtitle is An Inquiry into the Value of Work. Mm. And I just this book was really, really good to read. Um, he worked in uh, what was it, some kind of academic. Uh, context. But uh, when he was a, a younger j- younger guy, he went to uh, work in a motorcycle shop and really loved hands-on work like that. And after he got burned out um, uh, doing sort of intellectual work, he you know, quit his job and went and opened a motorcycle shop and ended up, he actually majored in philosophy too. So he wrote this book that has sort of a philosophical basis, a sort of philosophical defense of The Trades and Manual Work. Wow. Um, it's a really good book. I highly recommend it. Um, He has this, basically the way he sums up the book, uh, he says here, uh, in this book I would like to speak up for an ideal that is timeless but finds little accommodation today, manual competence, Mm. and the stance it entails toward the built material world. So he talks about the, the importance of being able to maintain your own stuff, mm. to know how stuff is put together, um, how to fix things. He talks about new cars that don't even have a dipstick. Right. It's not even possible There's a complete to check inability
1: water. to yeah. maintain it as a, the owner of the vehicle.
0: Right. And so he talks about that. Um, and it's interesting on my end of it, I don't know much about auto mechanic stuff, but as a woodworker, he talks about he doesn't know a lot about woodworking. So it's interesting hearing mm. the same sorts of things. Um, but he talks about building things and how important that is and particularly repairing things um, but there's, there's another section in here that really grabbed me you know at m here we talk a lot about pre-industrial craftsmanship and the shift in the industrial revolution and the shift toward the industrial model and he talks here about um, the shift away from uh, craftsmen or artisans into workers and what that process was like. Uh, there's a, he quotes a book that was uh, called The Principles of Scientific Management, and it's all about how to make workers, <laughs> how, oh. to make, how to make an industrial situation. And uh, he describes it, it says basically, uh, scattered craft knowledge is concentrated in the hands of the employer, then doled out again to workers in the form of minute instructions needed to perform some part of what is now a work process and so um, there's then uh, he goes on this he talks about this book this principles of scientific management and he says basically this is summing up I think the big difference here he says it is a mistake to suppose that the primary purpose of this uh, partition is to render the work process more efficient that's a mistake right it's not about making it more efficient he says, it may or may not result in extracting more value from a given unit of labor time. The concern is rather with labor cost. Right. Once the cognitive aspects of the job are located in a, in a separate, <clears throat> separate management class, or better yet, in a process once designed, it requires no ongoing judgment or deliberation. Skilled workers can be replaced with unskilled workers, At a lower rate of pay so it's just it was interesting reading that and he talks about Henry Ford and how there were all these uh, skilled people working building automobiles and when Ford came in with this assembly line process I don't remember what the number was but like a third of them quit oh wow they said we're not doing that yeah and so he had to raise the wages so they'd be tempted to come back and then they all just got used to it yeah and so it's it's a really interesting book. He talks about history and, and philosophy, and um, I, I highly recommend the book. It's Shop Class as Soulcraft by Matthew Crawford. Um, really compelling stuff. It's really interesting. I'm going to have to borrow that book.
1: Yeah. Um, I have been uh, watching our friend Richard uh, loaned me his collection. Richard has probably the most comprehensive woodworking library, maybe, of, <laughs> of anyone I know. Uh, maybe. But he loaned me his collection of uh, Peter Follinsby, uh how-to DVDs. Uh, he has the whole, everything that Peter Fallensby has put out for Lee Nielsen Tools. Um, I am uh, in the early stages of building a, basically a carved um, Bible box, like one of Peter's carved chests, but on a much smaller scale. He has several DVDs out that uh, specifically um, inform this process. Uh, the one that, um, I'm looking at right now is it's uh, instructional about making 17th century carved boxes. And, uh, I love that. You know, my, my kids love Peter Fallensby too. So we just sit and watch, you know, half an hour, 45 minutes at a time of, of a DVD. Uh, and they're great. They're super clear and helpful and, um, uh, I've I've gotten a lot out of it taking notes and uh, I'll be ready to move forward with a bit more confidence. Yep. Pete... I can make a box, but maybe not as pretty as Peter. So we'll...
0: <laughs> he's a great teacher. Yeah. He, he cracks me up. He's yeah. He's very skilled, very funny, very uh, affable. I, I like Peter Faldenspie.
1: Yeah, definitely. Um, and so I am I'm getting wound up to get that done this month. It's now December. Uh, shockingly oh, enough, Yeah, today. And so, kind of my tradition in December, and I think probably Joshua's too, is that we go, oh wow, it's December, it's time to cram in the the uh, gift making. Yeah, Christmas time. Christmas presents uh, for everyone, and we want to make something beautiful and lasting, and uh, also we only give ourselves like three weeks in which to do it. Which yeah, is on a good year. A good Christmas tradition, so... Um, <laughs> We, we both have a list of projects up our sleeves that we're uh, trying to fit in nights and weekends, and yeah, that sort of thing. Probably some of you out there can relate, uh, getting your Christmas gift making
0: done right now. Yeah, but we can't say what the projects we can't, because our loved ones.: Yeah, might be might listening. listening. yeah. yeah. So <clears throat> anyway, yeah, so the the theme of this episode is how to learn hand tool woodworking. <clears throat> Basically an introduction, it's basically you want, we wanted to talk to people who uh, maybe don't have any woodworking experience at all, or mm. people who are more geared toward power tools and maybe they want to shift over to hand tools. Right. And for them, the you know between where they're at today and going hand tool only, maybe it's desirable, but it seems like there's a big gap between right. you know, being able to do that. Um, so we've had a number of conversations with people over the past few years about this. So we thought it'd be good to do an episode that's focused on that topic, um, answer some of the questions that people ask us and things that we just kind of thought about ourselves. Yeah. Um, And so I guess the, the, the first place to start where I would, well, I think logically the first place to start is what is the best place to get started? Is it youtube videos right other instructional videos books books, or is it it you know should i take a weekend workshop what do you think mike what is the best place to start for somebody
1: yeah i i don't know that it's uh i i can speak of my my experience and what i found helpful uh i i got started kind of going to you know youtube university you know uh, i i found books and magazines helpful and inspirational, but f- there nothing beats watching someone uh, right. do it. In my opinion, I mean, you can learn a lot from a book and a magazine, and all of us certainly have, I'm sure. Uh, but the value of seeing someone do it is is really tremendous. Yeah. in my mind,
0: especially for how to kind of stuff. Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. Um, absolutely. I I tend to think that um, <clears throat> that the benefit. I mean. I I think, you know, 15 or 20 years ago if YouTube had been around. I, I who knows if I maybe it was around 15 20 years ago. <laughs> I keep saying that, I keep moving it back. Maybe I should say 25 years ago now. Um but I I think that it's such a wonderful thing that we have all these good teachers who are putting out useful uh material in this day and age.
0: Yeah.
1: And uh again, we hope that we are also furthering that with our apprenticeship series. Sure.
0: Right, yeah. I mean, yeah, I I think videos are a really good way to dip your toes in. Mm. It's a really low investment way to right. Oh yeah, get totally. started. Yeah, um, just learn a few things and try it. Um, I would definitely say the difference between a YouTube video and learning in person from somebody mm-hmm. is tremendous. There's a yeah. huge difference there. Yeah. Um. Even even I mean, if someone's watching you and they can say, "Oh no," you know, shift your body this way or do that. That's really important. But even yes. just being Right next to somebody working and seeing those subtle movements and all that kind of stuff, it's just uh, night and day. I think. Yeah. Um, so if you, I would say the the absolute best way to start would be take some classes, mm. but the least investment, most bang for your buck, yeah, and time and energy and whatever, maybe YouTube, yep. to, or whatever, some videos or something to get started. But as soon as you can, basically, I would say, watch a few videos, go try something. Yeah. Read a book to learn more about why that happened the way it happened. Right. And then as soon as you can, go take some weekend workshops. Go take a class with somebody who's been doing this a long time. And you're going to, all of a sudden, lights will start coming on saying, oh, oh, okay. I get why I keep having the same problem over and over.
1: Yeah, it's the feedback that you can get from someone, the direct one-to-one feedback. They can correct something that you've been struggling with. For a long time, and they just look at you and they say, "No, just do this
0: a little bit differently," and that can solve your problem. Yeah, uh, and I, I think so. That's <clears throat> books and videos are really good, but I think that's what they lack. I think they lack the in-person instruction, the the um, the catered one-to-one ratio, where you know an instructor is saying, "Hey, watch this. Oh, you doing you always do it this way? Try it this way." Um, I think that's really important.
1: Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so taking this person who's who's looking to learn woodworking, do you think it's, is it like, a lot of people think it's just, it's easier to use, well, there are people from both schools, it's easier to use hand tools or it's easier to use power tools for a beginner. Um, how does that, how do you think that plays out?
0: Um, I, I think that it's, I think it could be both. Um, there are certain operations that are – like once you get something jigged up on a machine, once it's all set right, it's easy to make that pass. Mm-hmm. Um, what's complicated is figuring out how to get it set up just perfectly right. Right. Um, you know, a lot of people say with hand tools you can make mistakes slower. Yes. You still yeah. still can make mistakes. Um, so there are things that um, machines can – you can learn to do them relatively quickly, um, like I would say, there's a pretty short learning curve to learn how to use a bandsaw. Mm-hmm. It's
1: not. It's a pretty intuitive. It's pretty tool. intuitive.
0: You can. There are a few safety things to point out, but it's not a, an incredibly complex thing. Learning how to use uh, a turning saw though has more complexity to the way right. if something gets uh, kinked or you're, you're, there's more. Basically, I think the more. Um, workmanship of risk is involved yeah the more complicated it becomes and so power tools can't some things can be easier but i mean really if, you, if then on the other side you think of it like a table saw and setting it up making sure it's uh the you know if you're gonna have to adjust the fence to make sure it's parallel to the blade or all that yeah. kind of stuff to make sure everything is safe and you have everything you can teach somebody all those things and labor all those points and teach them about, about kickback and all that. Right. There's a lot there. Or yeah. you can say, here's a handsaw. Yeah. And you can follow <laughs> the line, watch your shoulder. Yeah. You know, so it really depends on the operation, I think.
1: Yeah. And again, I mean, that's the example is, you know, for, for my kids, I'll hand them a handsaw and say, go to town. I would never sit them in front of a table saw. So that factor of approachability, especially for uh, younger kids, I think is. Is something that really needs to be weighed it's it's an important consideration uh hand tools are um you know the the saw stop is your you stop when you're getting into trouble you know and you have that ability to uh to see what's going on and to just cease all motion um yeah so
0: I, i think the big difference between hand tools Empower power tools so that hand tools aren't trying to kill you <laughs> right right exactly I mean, no not really exactly but, yeah yeah i mean i think that that's one thing to consider if someone's saying how can i send something through this machine well it's not really hard to tell them how to send it through a machine yeah but it, there are a lot of considerations to to take if you're going to say teach them how to do it safely yeah and efficiently so yeah. i i kind of think feel like it's Either or, I mean, they're, they're both yeah. They both require instruction.
1: Yeah, Yep. just varying degrees in different ways. So sp- speaking of uh, you know, table saw versus handsaw, if one was to uh, decide to go like dive in um, to hand tools, where where on earth do you think they should begin? What's the logical way of going about that, taking the step into hand tool woodworking?
0: Uh, for somebody who's already uh, maybe an ex- semi ex- someone who has some experience with woodworking, but they have a lot of power tools mm. and they and they want to shift, I would say probably as you're building stuff, start to slowly incorporate hand tools into your work. Mm-hmm. Buy a few hand saws, buy a few hand planes, and I don't know, maybe commit to performing one particular operation out of that project with that tool.
1: Yeah, like like say you decide that you are literal literally or figuratively going to kill your table saw for this build <laughs> and you say okay so therefore i've committed myself to using my crosscut and my rip saw and i am just going to just going to go for it just dive in
0: yeah right and i mean i you could also <clears throat> I, I guess i feel like if we said just go cold turkey just buy a whole bunch of hand tools and right. just dive in yeah Without any instruction, yeah. you know, maybe you watch a few YouTube videos and just dive in. I, I would be nervous that someone would say, wow, this is really slow because they haven't had time to get used to the tools. Yeah. So I would say if you're trying to make that transition, I would say slowly work them into your routine so you can kind of feel out how each tool works, how a saw works and a chisel works and whatever you're, yeah. you haven't done a bit of exposure to. If you're totally green, you have no experience, I don't think it's really an advantage necessarily to start with power tools and then work your way into hand tools, right? Because um, you're not trying to unlearn anything. I think you just start in with hand tools, and you know you'd be you'd be on your way.
1: Yeah, yeah, exactly. It kind of like you know learning a language.
0: So, I, it is different though. You know, it is right. You would say, I mean, the the approach to building with machines and the approach to building by hand um, tends to be different, right? Yeah. Uh,
1: so, yeah, if we're if you're thinking uh, approach in like plotting out your steps or even yeah, like, the approach mentally,
0: yeah, like what <clears throat> what uh, changes do you think someone would need to make in their approach and their mindset to to get into this kind of way of working?
1: Yeah. Um, so, uh, you know, a lot of it has to do with uh kind of the way even a shop is is built. Like most modern shops are kind of oriented like with the table saw as the sun. Like that's the center of the shop. It occupies the big footprint in the middle. And so that kind of denotes its the, the importance of that tool and uh, where most of the work is done, and then you know you have all these other machines kind of scattered around the perimeter. Um, so basically, when you when you take more of a, a hand tool only mindset, and let's just say all those machines just disappear, well, the shop looks a lot different, and your your focus is then on on the bench, and on um, you know breaking down stock efficiently and things like that. Uh, yeah. What,
0: how would you proceed with that? Yeah, I agree. I mean, most, obviously every period cabinet making shop was, there were different sizes, but a lot of them were like 12 by 20. Mm -hmm. And they had one to three people working in there. And so you had this tiny little space for a handful of people working, building multiple pieces of furniture in a shockingly small space. Right. Um, and you know, Mike and I, for for a few years now, have been working out of this fourteen by seventeen space. Right. Uh, with no real, if we're just building, we have no real crunch on space yeah. at all. When we were doing more conservation, we had objects in here that were, you know, kind of into the work area, and that was not okay. Yeah. Um, but for just building, all you need is a bench and a saw bench. Yep. And room for the piece to stand, in, in you know, when it's completed. And that's all you really need. So that's the difference there. But as far as mindset, I think that's even more critical. Because mm. you can still build <clears throat> with a table saw sitting in the same room. Right. But the mindset, I think, is, at least in my way of going about it, was totally, totally different. Mm. And I think the first thing, the biggest uh, thing you have to shift over to is you have to completely let go of the concept of interchangeability. mm when you're dealing with machines, you can regulate it such that all the rails are the exact same dimension. Right. You can, and you're milling out all the tenons in the same jig so that every tenon, every rail, or whatever, is re- is interchangeable. Yeah. You can replace it with this one, swap it out. It's no big deal because they fit the exact same, theoretically. Right. Um. If the world was perfect, that would yeah. be the case. Yeah. Right. 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 Um. But when you're working with hand tools, it becomes instantly clear that that's not even remotely feasible. Right. I mean, um,
1: you could struggle in that direction. You, you, you could, could try. try and try and try and be, you know, frustrated and come to the conclusion that these tools are imprecise or sure. something like that. Uh, but that's not the way that people have built furniture historically. And, you know, when we're looking to be um, you know, true to that, true to that tradition of the way furniture was built, and seeing what's important and what's not important from a um, pre-industrial mindset, uh, if we're using those same tools, we should try and adopt that same mindset uh, yeah. rather than the modern machined mindset. Uh, so yeah, it's a, it's totally a, a shift. I you know a big part. Um, I, I always like to think of it as um, you're basically when when you transition from more of a power tool centered orientation to hand tool, you're sort of exchanging noise for for effort. You know, you're you're taking the the machines doing the work for you and you're exchanging that. And you know, the the amount of energy that's required to spin the blade in the table saw and to do a certain amount of work of cutting or ripping, you are now having to generate that. Which is fine but it's also it's a different way of looking at a project right um and so you know we we always tell people yes this this is work you know there there is a certain amount of s- sweat that i mean i've done plenty of sweating at a table saw over the years <laughs> um but it's it's a a different uh there are different factors involved um the the type of work is definitely more
0: physical um yeah i mean i think you know i'm thinking of you know what's fresh in our minds right now is this tables video we've been watching it over and over and yes when we're when i was uh planing out the rails i would plane one face what we're talking about rough sawn boards i'd plane one face totally clean and flat and maybe a total of i don't know a dozen passes with the three planes i'd clean it off with the four plane well you know, triplane and then smooth plane. However many passes, twenty total or something. Mm-hmm. Quick, quick, <laughs> quick passes. One yeah. flat, clean face. Yeah, good. Flip it over on the inside. Yeah, I it just, was like
1: f- like four passes. Like I just take the it with
0: a four plane, just so that the rough sawn material wouldn't kind of scratch me when I grabbed the, picked the table up. I right. mean, it doesn't even need to be planed at all. In fact, a lot of period tables there are uh, still have sawmill marks, saw marks or, yeah. right on the inside rail. So if one of the rails is an inch and a quarter and the one opposite it is three quarters of an inch it doesn't matter because you're always referencing off the outside face the reference face and so that's why it's important as you're fitting each tenon into each mortise every, everything is a little bit different that's why it's important that you label each joint and that kind of thing so um it's to me, that's a really different way of working. Yeah. Of course, you can use you can incorporate machines to do some grunt work and still work like that. Mm-hmm. It just doesn't. It becomes not necessary to. You don't need every board to be four square and perfectly yeah. flat. It's and, efficiency.
1: Yeah, it's it's right. so much more about efficiency.
0: So I, I think it is a big <clears throat> shift for a lot of people um, to get to get used to those secondary surfaces. Um, but for me, even you know, just thinking about. When you're using hand tools, you're trying to work fast, and you have all the, you're relying on reference faces. You have to be referencing off the correct face, yeah. Rather than putting all these pencil marks all over it and saying, "Okay, this is the the reference face. Here's a reference edge," and you're always like chasing these pencil marks. I found if you leave the inside the secondary surface, if you leave that rough,
1: yeah. You won't accidentally <laughs> reference off it. You know what You're the like, good Whoa, face is. You're like, well, there's some bark in here. I should, probably <laughs> shouldn't measure off that.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's it, so it, it really is very practical. I pick it up and I immediately know what what face is the the out the show face. Yeah. Um. So that kind of stuff really is uh, empowering, and it's a totally different mindset from the way I was trained on machines. So yeah, yeah, definitely.
1: Good. Uh. So in uh. So that's a mindset question. Like, how how do we shift? Shift the mindset, shift the view of working and working efficiently with these different tools and different skill sets. So, uh, what have you found in your experiences? Like the hardest hand tool woodworking operation to learn? What is what have you struggled with?
0: Um, Carving. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Okay. Yeah. I mean, so (laughs) like, but I say that because the things that are like I was saying earlier, closer to the workmanship of risk, meaning operations that are relying more on your skill and dexterity, the, the, the manual competency you have, like an axe or a gouge mm, or yeah, something like yeah. that, it's really that the outcome is really dependent on your skill. Yeah. The closer you are to those kinds of operations are the hardest to master. Mm. Um, but something that's jigged up like, say, a hand plane. Mm-hmm. A hand plane is a jig, essentially. Yeah. Um, if the, the skill with that, some of it is, you know, planing, but a lot of it's in setup. If you can right. set up the tool properly, it's going to get you 90% of the way there, and then it, there are just some subtle motions you can make with your body as you're planing, perhaps. Yeah. But, um, so the more jigged something is, the easier it is to learn. The, the, you, the more your outcome is going to be successful. Yeah. Um, so, using a hatchet cutting dovetails by eye, um, all that kind of stuff is, I found that to be more concentrated effort to learn. Yeah, I yes. Mean, you, is that your experience? Yeah, I,
1: I would say, and I, um, you know, that's, once you can develop those skills with those less um, predictable tools, it really, really helps aid everything else. You know, it kind of works backwards. You're more confident with, the tools that are more predictable.
0: Yeah. Oh, um, and the, the less regulated the tool is, there uh, typically, the works really well for coarse tools. Yeah. If a hatchet had a depth gauge, Yeah. That wouldn't really- That would
1: limit its it, value. It would
0: be limited. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So it's valuable that it doesn't have a depth gauge. Yeah. But it requires that you're the depth gauge. Yeah, exactly. Um, so especially for course tools, those are going to be the ones that are you can really mess stuff up fast with a hatchet if you're not skilled or careful or yeah yeah so
1: you say carving (laughs) (laughs) uh so if we're if you know a lot of uh woodworkers aspiring woodworkers woodworkers starting out they look at um we, we we go over this again and again we talk about dovetails as dovetails are, they have this magical perception for people who are maybe not woodworkers or they're just starting out woodworking and things like that. And that they're kind of viewed as sort of this pinnacle of there's a lot of um, inherent difficulty. And uh, so that's sort of held up as something to strive to attain perfection in or right. at least competence. Um, did you find uh, when you're learning woodworking is that something that you struggled with cutting joinery, learning joinery, learning how to, you know, properly reference those things?
0: Um, yeah. I, I when I started, yeah, I did. I I wasn't sure the best way, but actually, you know, the first time I the first set of dovetails, first dovetail corner I cut. I was reading uh, Roy Underhill's books, whatever one that is that he's... I don't remember which one that is that shows how to cut dovetails. Um, and I read that chapter, and it's, you know, black and white images, and I basically mm-hmm. was... Basically, was just looking at the pictures. I read it, but it's mm. it's mostly picture-heavy, and I said, I'm going to do what that shows me. Mm. And they look pretty bad. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. But <laughs> then my second ones looked a lot better, and my third looked a lot better yet. And so, you know... Um, with that, like, you know, I was just cutting a practice joint. There. Right. Um, and practice joints are can be helpful. Right. Um, but what I would say is I, th- I maybe cut, like for dovetails, say, maybe I cut two practice dovetails in my life. Yeah. Or three. And then I said, okay, well, they still look bad, but, or, you know, not great, but right. I'm going to cut four out of the same four boards. Yeah, yeah. And (laughs) And if I'm doing this, I might as well just make a little box, Make a box, exactly.
1: Well, that's, I have, I am not sure that I have ever cut a practice dovetail. I don't think I have the patience (laughs) to, because I'm like, if I'm doing this, I should at least make a box. It's going to look, well, no, but if I'm going to do this, I want something, even if it, you know, my first set of dovetails, like, maybe like yours, looked pretty bad, but they were part of a box. And as far as right. I know, that box is still holding together.
0: And what do you always tell me, Mike?
1: Oh, I don't know. What do I always Putty say? and paint. Make oh, yeah. it what it ain't. A little putty little paint and make it what it ain't. Yeah, you can do magic <laughs> with paint on a box with with really bad dovetails. Um But they're, they're strong. That's the amazing thing about yeah, dovetails. Right. They There's a lot of, uh, you know, flexibility. In your...
0: Well, anyone who's seen... Uh, Issue two of the magazine, and you saw the yeah the photo essay as it were of the dovetails, period dovetails. Every we get so much feedback from that people saying I can't believe all the the gaps and the tolerance that that was acceptable then. Right, um, it's pretty normal to have gaps and that kind of thing in period work. Not yeah. all of them. Some people were persnickety and, and very careful. Yeah. Um, but a lot of people viewed dovetails uh, a little bit more. Serving a, a utilitarian end rather right. than some you know, uh, showy kind of end. So I would say don't worry about it. <clears throat> Just cut some dovetails. And there's a guy that I really like uh, named uh, Joel Soliton. Uh, he's my favorite lunatic farmer. Yeah. He's a, he's a crazy guy. He's
1: everyone's favorite lunatic farmer.
0: Yeah. Uh, Joel Soliton. And uh, he has this thing that he says, if it's worth doing... It's worth doing poorly first. Mm. So he basically says, you know, when, you, when your toddler or your little kid, your toddler's trying to learn how to toddle, trying try, try, try to learn how to walk, mm. and they stand up and they kind of take a first step and then they fall down, nobody says, what? That's horrible. Yeah, When are that. you ever going to learn how to walk? <laughs> they all go, "Woohoo! you're great. Yeah. That's how, you did such a good job. And then they learn to walk. And he said, if you know, basically, if you're gonna learn to do something, just do it bad. Who cares? Do it once and move on. And not and don't worry about it. And um, you know, this this whole idea of basically the um the opposite of success is not mistake or failure, it's mm. quitting. Yeah, so if you quit, yeah, <clears throat> you're never gonna make good dovetails. Yeah. But after you you make a pile of bad ones you're that much closer. And it's it's amazing how fast, uh, how much progress you can make by just cutting them. Cut them quick, move fast, and, and just keep going.
1: Yeah, yeah, so. don't don't give up. And uh, if I may make a, a subtle pitch here, uh, we live in Maine, Maine is part of New England. The wood that uh, we have in New England for building furniture and cutting dovetails is surpassed by no other wood in the planet for its workability. Wow. Even its beauty, Uh, we have eastern white pine up here. And so, especially if you're starting out, uh, you're a new woodworker or you're a seasoned woodworker, we highly recommend white pine.
0: I love. Yeah, no, it's true. I love working with white pine. What I would say, it's it's easier because you can take deeper cuts, you know, really move a lot of material. However, it's also trickier to work. I've actually had a lot of people say, I hate working with pine because I keep denting it. Yep. And, for example, chopping between dovetails, I keep breaking the the fragile end grain um, and, and, and that's true because yeah. what I like about pine is it's a, actually a pretty good place to start because you can plane it fast, yeah, but it also more importantly forces you to get good at sharpening. yeah, because a dull tool in pine ends up tearing up and it breaks yep. out grain. it's not good um, so that I, that's good. I mean, basically you'll you will. You practice on pine and you practice on maple, mm. and you learn how you need to cut those joints differently. Yeah. Um, with pine, you want to have some extra room there because it will compress into maple or even pine, and pine will compress. So with with maple, you want to stick right a lot more on the line. So you'll learn the different woods. But if you're just starting, just get some cheap wood that's soft and just. Cut a yep. whole bunch of them.
1: Yeah, and, uh, you know, a big part of that with pine, the fact that it dents easily and the fact that it, uh, you know, going across end grain, you need to have a super sharp chisel or a plane. That really helps you because once you get good at cutting nice, crisp joints or dovetails in pine, anything else will seem, you know, a bit easier. You're like, yeah. wow, this this wood actually is uh, pretty good. It's pretty solid. It's, it's a lot easier to shear off and... Uh, so pine pine is pine is king
0: yeah we like pine i i think when i'm um learning a new skill or sort of you know when i'm in the in the zone you know when i'm, when I'm in a project and i'm working through it the same thing over and over so say it's a practice joint or whatever you're working on um what i found really helpful is to be very consistent about how you're doing it mm. so again to keep Focusing on this dovetail example, yeah. um, if you're gonna if you're practicing cutting dovetails by making a little box, every joint you cut, you should put I I put my tools in the same spot on the bench. So if you're trying to get something down, you pick up the tool in the same spot. You're not fumbling, looking for tools. It just helps you focus on the task at hand, and not you're not just always constantly distracted, running around looking for tools because uh, you keep shifting them different places. Right. So I'd say the the more variables you can get out of this this scenario the more you can understand and troubleshoot when you're having problems so um i would say lay it out the same way every time mm. off the same side with the same wood with the same tools and the same spot you know just do it all the same and then when you have if you keep having the exact same problem you can go huh okay Something here is really consistent, and then you can troubleshoot that. But if every time you're doing it different, it, you have no idea what the problem is. You right.
1: Know? Yeah, you you can't develop that consistency of repetition. Right. Um, and there's, there's so much to be said for that. You know, I've heard of, um, I, again, I've never, I have not done it yet. I keep wanting to. Uh, people who take up the Dovetail a Day Challenge, and they find themselves taking a very long time, day one, Uh, By the end, they have gotten into a flow. They've gotten into a groove. They can cut dovetails, and they feel like they can fly through them and and do them all day long. Um, That's a dovetail day for what? Dovetail day for, what is it? Like 30 days or I believe so, yeah. I I think I've heard of people who do it for a solid month.
0: Or even like two weeks. Yeah. Yeah, I've seen those before, people on Instagram doing that. And at like day four, they're looking really pretty good. Yeah. the the fourth dovetail they've ever cut. You know, it's amazing. (laughs) So that that's just how it works. It's all about repetition. It is so. But what would you say? I mean, we have we we've kind of set all this up, saying you know there are all these different things you can, these different resources you can go to, uh, watch out for this. This kind of wood is helpful. Mm. But still, I can just I can just hear some people listening saying, "Yeah, but." this is why I can't, or I can't afford it, or I can't do this. I don't have time. That takes a lot of time. Yeah, I'm not uh, athletic, so I can't do that. You know, there are a lot of things people could think of. Um, So, Mike, what do you think are the biggest hurdles some of our listeners might have to make this shift from power tools to hand tools? Yeah. Uh, I think... um,
1: a big, a pretty common hurdle is just the idea, the hand tools, especially, um, you know, the idea of the, the plane, the rip saw, the cross cut saw being your, your basic stock prep tools. There's this, there's kind of a foreignness to them. They seem, it seems like there's a lot to learn about them. And, uh, sometimes, you know, whenever I, I got started, I had a, really lousy crosscut saw that I had bought at Ace Hardware for, you know, $8 or something. Nothing against Ace Hardware, but it was a bad saw. And I didn't I didn't know why it didn't work, and I didn't know who to ask. Um, so I think, I, I just think knowledge or lack of knowledge uh, can be a, a big hurdle in getting started. Um, that's why, again, we we... In this day and age, we have this uh, i would say almost a glut of available knowledge between YouTube videos out there and people that we can talk to as again, it kind of comes full circle to um taking a class and just having someone to ask, having someone to engage with yeah um about this but i mean more more broadly like is there there's even bigger or deeper than that, that well, I
0: mean you know ironically. My answer to that kind of question is exactly opposite to what you just said. (laughs) Nice. I think the biggest hurdle for people to switch from power tools to hand tools is internet forums. Oh. (laughs) (laughs) No, I mean, really, I think it's, in all seriousness, I think the more people's opinions you absorb and think through and try to understand... Without doing it, mm. the more confused you get. Right. And the more hard it seems. Yeah. If somebody can cite a dozen ways to cut a dovetail yeah. by memory because they've read them all and they've yeah. compared them and they've, they've never, never done, done it. it. Yeah. It's going to seem so ominous to actually cut these yeah. dang things. Yeah. But if you had no experience no, or reading these things, no knowledge about it, and someone said, oh, no, just do it like this and this. I've heard a number of stories of people. They just do it. Yeah. It's not a big deal. They don't know to be afraid. There's nothing right. to be afraid of. And so I think one of the biggest hurdles, you know, it's great. Watch a YouTube video maybe, read an article, something like that. Go, oh, that sounds interesting. And then go and try, then it. try it. Yeah, and then say, well, that didn't work. Why didn't that work? And then go read something else and try it again or talk to some other people. Um, and I, I think that that's the most important thing that I would say is go do it. Just go get mm. in the shop make some sawdust, cut some crappy dovetails. Yeah. You know, make a little box and putty and paint. And then, yeah. you know, you'll be, you'll say, hey, I made this. Yeah. And you can give
1: it as a Christmas gift.
0: And your brother's going to say, man, that's really awesome. You're yeah. doing woodworking. Hand-cut and
1: cut dovetails.
0: Yeah. Right. So I think that's what I would say. I would say, just go do it. Just go make some stuff um, and, and have a lot of fun doing it because that's why we are doing this. Yeah. Anyways.
1: That's the whole
0: point. Yeah. Honestly. Well,
1: that, that is great. Uh, hopefully, uh, those of you listening, we've, we've given you some things to think about here and, um, maybe a little bit of motivation to get out, go down to the shop, go out to the garage and, uh, pick up some tools and, and just give it a go. Yeah. Um, that's what we want most of all, just to provide a little bit of that inspiration. So, uh, thank you very much for listening to the Morrison and Tenon Magazine podcast. Uh, go ahead and comment, um, leave us comments on social media or, you know, below wherever you're listening to this podcast. You can find us on SoundCloud and iTunes and, um, just give us a follow. We're again, hoping to put out a podcast fairly regularly, um, once every couple weeks or so, and we're really enjoying it and we really love to get feedback. So
0: yeah. And, and let us know if you, uh, have some other topics you'd like us to cover We have a a list of things we're excited to talk about, but uh, we're always looking for uh, your thoughts and uh, your ideas. So send those along to us.
1: Absolutely. So thank you all very much for listening.